Tonight we are going to attempt our, our second uh, lesson on questions and answers. Uh, we did this about a month ago, and we had, I think, like three questions submitted that time. Uh, tonight, just to let you know, I had five questions, and so uh, hopefully we will touch on all five of these questions tonight. And I'm thankful for uh, you submitting those. And again, please uh, continue to do that, and hopefully within another month or so we can do another lesson. But again, this is how you and I learn and grow together. We, we ask questions. We seek answers. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it because it helps me understand, you know, maybe what uh, you're thinking, what you're wanting to know. And uh, it helps me to dive dig- deeper into those subjects and to uh, look for the, for the answers in the scriptures as to how it can help you and I. You know, there are some things, though, that, uh, you know, that may be submitted that, you know, that I might not... Uh, get to or maybe choose to answer. Maybe this isn't the best uh, place from the pulpit to uh, talk about those things. And so if you want to talk to, the, to me about those uh, uh, anonymously or again, uh, just one-on-one, again, I'd love to do that as well. But I also will uh, maybe take one of those questions and sort of modify it as well to kind of um, encompass a, a different uh, vast majority of what I believe is being asked. Uh, But again, some questions, you know, just kind of to say at the beginning, I might not fully be able to answer. Uh, You remember Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 said that uh, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Right. There are some things that we just don't know the answer for. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29, Moses said the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that he revealed to us, you know, those are for us and for our children forever and ever, right? There are just, there are some things that are, as Moses says, are secret things, the things that pertain to God and that uh, we'll just never know this side of eternity. But what we can do is seek a, thus saith the Lord in the scriptures, uh, hopefully to answer some of these questions, because ultimately Christianity has nothing to hide. Uh, it invites questions. You know, come now and let us reason together, Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, I just want to read this really quickly in Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 3. Before we begin, uh, in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, you know, Paul lays down a blueprint for you and I when it comes to seeking a Bible answer. It says here that uh, when he had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's customs, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Again, Paul lays down a blueprint here of how we are to do that. Uh, As he went to the synagogue each week, it says there that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And that he explained, uh, literally that word means he opened, he opened up the scrolls before them and gave evidence. He placed it before them. Right? Paul didn't give them his opinion, but he opened up the scriptures and let them know uh, what the scriptures had to say pointing to Jesus. And again, we're, you know, we live in a, a society right now that there's just so much information out there that we need to make sure that we're not just taking someone's word for it. Because our very souls are at stake when it comes to God's word. Uh, Proverbs twenty three twenty three: buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. So again, that's the reason why we are doing these things uh, here this, 
this evening. So uh, as we begin, here's the first question, and um, I have to uh, say this at first. This was sort of my fault because I had um, mentioned this a couple of months ago as maybe an example to give as a question or a question not to give, but somebody went ahead and gave that to me anyways. Uh, Did Adam or Eve have a belly button? You know, and when you think about that question at first, you might think, well, maybe that's a question, uh, you know, that they sort of will try to trick you in school by saying, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Right. Uh, But obviously, as Christians, we understand it's the chicken. Right. The chicken was created on day six. But as we think of this question, what came first? Or excuse me, did Adam or Eve have a belly button? Um, Or if you prefer, I could use the word navel. But uh, I think we can confidently uh, say that we can answer this question here tonight uh, because um, <clears throat> because let's think of this for uh, in an instant. Let's think of this. Um, what is a belly button? What is a navel? Well, of course, it is a sign that you were uh, once attached to your mother, right? You were dependent on your mother through that umbilical cord uh, from her to you. And because of that, because of that scar, because of that uh, removal of the umbilical cord, uh, you and I have belly buttons, right? That we have been uh, birthed through a natural process. You probably never thought you'd hear a sermon with the word belly button in it uh, so much. But, but again, think of this. God created man in Genesis chapter 1, we're told, on day 6. That Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 was created from the dust of the ground. Again, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then in chapter 2, starting in verse 21, it says, The creation of Eve. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And when he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Eve, Eve, the the first woman, the mother of all living. Adam, the first man. Adam and Eve were not created naturally like you and I. Uh, through, uh, through natural consequences, but they were created supernaturally. Other writers confirm this in the New Testament as well. Jesus said that, uh, remember in Matthew chapter 19, uh, that they were created in the beginning. And Paul even said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that Adam was created first and then Eve. They were created so I think we can uh, conclude this, uh, this question here by saying that Adam and Eve were created. Uh, the only instance in this world that two individuals who were not born naturally like you and I, and therefore they, they had no reason to have a navel. Again, because uh, there was no, they had no mother. They had no umbilical cord attached to them at, at any point in their lives. And so, um, so that's the first question. Okay, that's, that's question number one. Question number two uh, was submitted. What happened to Paul's trial in Rome with Caesar? Are there any accounts of how his trial with Caesar went? And so to answer this question, we want to go to the book of Acts here. Um, maybe if you want to go to Acts chapter 27 or 28, uh, at the end of the book, we'll, we'll look at a few scriptures here. But the book of Acts, I love the book of Acts. It's one of my favorite 
books and all of Scripture. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, it really leaves you wanting more, especially when you read those last few verses. And of course, uh, to set this question up, we need to think of Paul. He's on his, his third missionary journey. He's returning from that in Acts chapter 21. And there are some Jews who notice uh, that Paul is back in Jerusalem. And they notice that he's in the temple one day. And so they, they get some people fired up about this. Uh, they even uh, sort of make up this lie that he brought this Gentile, uh, this man by the name of Trophimus, who was a Greek, into the temple. Right? And that was a no-no. Now, the two of them were together, but nowhere in the scriptures say that Paul brought him into the temple. But they accused Paul of bringing him into the temple. And so this made a big riot uh, in front of the people, so much so that uh, the Roman government had to get involved and they arrest Paul because uh, they believe that he's stirring up a riot. And basically from that point on in the book of Acts is going to be a series of trials uh, of the apostle Paul. Uh, In chapter 22, he's going to go before the Jews and give his defense. In chapter 23, he's going to go before the Sanhedrin, uh, which was the leaders of the Jewish nation, to give his defense. In chapter 24, he's going to go before Governor Felix uh, of the Roman uh, Empire. And then in chapter 25 and chapter 26, uh, there's another governor, Governor Festus, that he's going to go before. And then uh, King Agrippa. But if you recall, uh, back when he is talking to uh, Governor Festus, when he's giving uh, his uh, testimony in front of uh, this governor, he says, you know, basically, you know, I've committed no offense here uh, as far as the law of Moses or uh, for the temple or even to Caesar. But do you remember what he did? He said in chapter 25, verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. He knows that uh, he's been uh, basically imprisoned um, for at least a couple of years at this point. He knows that these trials are kind of uh, shoddy and shady and that he's not getting his fair share. And so he appeals to Caesar. Uh, That's his right. As a Roman citizen, Paul could appeal to Caesar. He says, I want to go all the way to Caesar, the highest court in the land, and have my case heard there. And of course, uh, they say, you appeal to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Um, and it's ironic that in the next chapter, when he's before King Agrippa, that, he, that Agrippa and Festus say to one another, you know what, if this man never appealed to Caesar, he probably would have been set free. We would have probably let him go because we just can't find the accusations made against him. But this was something that we learn later in uh, Acts chapter 27, verse 24, that had to happen. Right? This was divinely planned by God that's that Paul would make his way to Rome to go before Caesar and this trial. So Paul is sent to Rome. That's Acts chapter 27. Uh, This is is all about his travels to Rome. And it's ironic that uh, when Paul is writing the book of Romans uh, uh, during his third missionary journey, so uh, right before he goes on this trip, uh, he says in chapter 1 verse 10 of the book of Romans that he desires to visit them. He really wanted to be with the church in Rome. Well, be careful what you wish for, because that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to Rome, but he's going to Rome in chains. Uh, he's going to, it's not how he imagined it. And we recall his journey there. He gets shipwrecked, remember? Uh, winter comes, and so they have to stay about three months on, the, on an island when wintering the ship. And you recall that he eventually gets to Malta, and he's bit by that viper. And there's all of these things that happen on his way there. But he finally gets to Rome, chapter 28, starting in verse 11. Uh, through the end of the chapter here. And, you know, again, this is his first arrest. 
Paul's going to be arrested two uh, major times. And this is that first major time that he's arrested. But this time he's under house arrest. This isn't uh, necessarily in the stocks or in chains or anything like this. It's not as severe as the, ne- as the second time he's going to be arrested. Uh, but from his house arrest, uh, he's going to do a lot of good. He's going to write uh, Ephesians and Colossians and, and Philippians and Philemon, the prison epistles. But note it, let's notice how the book of Acts ends. Chapter 28, starting uh, in verse 30, it says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's how the book of Acts ends. Uh, What happened to Caesar? What happened to that trial? Well, we're never told. The the Holy Spirit didn't uh, reveal that to us. But the question we have tonight is what happened to Paul's trial in Rome with Caesar? Now, we do know from uh, the last three letters of Paul's life, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that Paul was eventually released from this imprisonment. And so we know that, again, from that verse in uh, chapter 27, verse 24, that it must happen that Paul was to stand before Caesar, that, that Paul must have stood before Caesar and had been acquitted of those charges. Um, again, the scriptures don't let us know exactly how that, uh, that trial went uh, with Caesar. Uh, There are some extra-biblical writings of uh, historians during that time who give us a little bit of a glimpse into what what might have happened. Probably the most uh, famous of those is the man by the name of Eusebius, who is nicknamed the father of church history. Uh, But he lived from 275 A.D. to 339 A.D. And so you can tell that's about 200 years after uh, the life of Paul and those events happened. So, again, uh, we have to take you know, what he has to say with a, a grain of salt, whether that was oral um, uh, messages that was passed down from person to person or what. But here's what Eusebius said about Paul. He said that he defended himself successfully before Caesar, that he went on another missionary journey, which a lot of other um, Historians will write and say that Paul did eventually go on a fourth missionary journey. Uh, we believe it went, he went to Spain. If you read Romans chapter 15, he talks about Spain a couple of times. He hopes to make it to Spain. But Eusebius also tells us that he was martyred under Nero, uh, the Caesar Nero. And so when he uh, is arrested again that second time, this time he, um, he is uh, beheaded uh, and that because he had a Roman citizenship, he didn't have to suffer a cruel death like the, uh, the other apostles uh, because he was a Roman citizen. But we believe that he was martyred during that second epistle or during that second um, prison a sentence that he had. And of course, you know, we get the sense when we read Second Timothy, the last letter of Paul, that uh, he knew that his time was imminent. So, again, just to conclude our thoughts here on this question, what happened to Paul's trial in Rome? The, the, de- the details of the case. From scripture, we just don't know. Uh, but we have little bits of pieces uh, that we can uh, glean from and historians uh, that believe, again, that he successfully defended himself, uh, that he went on to another missionary journey uh, before uh, coming to succumbing to his, his death sentence. Question number three. Should someone uh, that is not a member of the Church of Christ teach a Bible class or lead the congregation in worship, such as prayer, singing, and preaching? 
And so there's some questions that I get, uh, you know, through the box that, you know, maybe I don't fully understand what the question is. Uh, should anyone uh, not a member of the church teach or pray or or sing? Or what I think what the question is asking is, should one who is not a New Testament Christian be allowed to you know, teach a Bible class or to or preach a sermon or or to you know, lead and worship uh, in the Lord's church. So I think that's the, the intent of this question here uh, this evening. And, uh, and let's think about this. I, I want to point out three different scriptures uh, about this. But when a man uh, leads in oh, the worship service, whether it's you know, praying or singing or delivering a message, you know, he's ultimately responsible for what he says and where it may lead others. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, and let's notice uh, what Peter says here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Peter writes, <clears throat> Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, Peter says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, the oracles of God. You know, if one has never obeyed the gospel, just as the Bible has laid it out, Right, uh, hearing, believing, or repenting, confessing, and being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins and being added to the church. Well, how can we entrust an individual to speak the utterances of God? James chapter 3, verse 1, uh, James said this. He said, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we, may, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, that passage is not meant to scare someone into becoming a teacher, but it should emphasize to us the, the importance and the responsibility that we have uh, when taking on that role. Right? Uh, you remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, when Paul is laying down the qualifications of an elder, and one of those he says is, is not be a novice, right? not be a new convert. You know, if you can't be a new convert in the Lord's church and be an elder then you know, maybe it's not a good idea to put a new convert, a new Christian in a teaching role. Well, then what does that make someone who, who is not a New Testament Christian? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and this is the last scripture I want to point out here. Uh, notice what Paul says here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, as he's uh, writing again to, to the, the young preacher Timothy, he says, The things which you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, again, knowing his life is about to end soon, he says to Timothy, I'm, the things that you've heard from me, I want you to teach to faithful men so that those faithful men can go and teach others also. Now that word men there is not the word for male, the male gender, but it's for mankind. Right? So, so women are included in that verse. Timothy, you teach faithful men and women so that they can teach other men and women. And, and key in on that word faithful there. Uh, this is the same Greek word that's often translated believing or, or trustworthy. You teach faithful men. You teach tr trustworthy men. You teach believing men to teach others. 
You know, I, I know of uh, some preachers who have had the opportunity to preach before uh, denominations. Right? They've uh, been uh, asked to come and preach before a denomination, and they will sometimes accept that opportunity. But they're going to do it by going and preaching the truth in love. They're not going to go and do it and preach the, uh, the doctrine of the denomination, but they're going to preach the truth in love. And uh, they've also even taught us that in school. You know, if that was ever an opportunity, make sure you bring with you a recorder and record what you say uh, so that no one can say that you're teaching or preaching error. Well, someone might say to us, well, why would you never allow somebody, a denominational preacher, to get up in your pulpit and preach uh, a message if you would be okay going there and preaching a message? Well, we would go to a couple different scriptures. John chapter 4, verse 24 Worship God in spirit and in truth. Yes, they might worship in spirit. They might be doing it sincerely, but would they be preaching and teaching the truth? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says the church is to be a pillar and support of the truth. We are to hold up the truth as the church. Can we know the truth? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. So in concluding this, this question, we'll know. Uh, we, we would not allow someone, and I hope that would be you know, your answer as well, someone who is not a New Testament Christian to lead uh, the church here in worship or, or to teach a Bible class. Uh, we want to tell them that we love them and that we want to see them to uh, obey the Lord's uh, command uh, to become a New Testament Christian. But to lead the congregation, you know, we want... Uh, someone who would be, again, speaking the oracles of God that Peter said. So question number three, and I know uh, I got two more questions to get through and my time is uh, getting limited. So uh, this next one, grab a songbook if you would to do this, because I had a a couple of um, songs asking, you know, are these songs scriptural? And so what I'd like to do is just uh, uh, look at these. But um, I mentioned last month that, you know, there are some... uh, the, the fact that these are not inspired, right? These are written by men and women uh, who make mistakes. And these are spiritual songs written by fallible men and women. And therefore, you know, some of us, uh, you know, who might stand before you to lead a song, you know, we need to take due diligence to understand the words that we're saying and to also make sure that we're not uh, singing or leading the church in false doctrine, um, again, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says that, you know, we're, when we offer the fruit of our lips and we do that one way in the songs that we choose. Well, the thing is, is that when we think of the hymns uh, and lyrics, you know, they are basically poetry, right? Poetry. And just like the Psalms that are poetry, uh, but those are inspired, uh, we know that uh, that lyrics take, you know, what we refer to as poetical license, right? Sometimes they'll use metaphors to get their point across, uh, literary devices, and we don't always know the intent of the author uh, who uh, maybe writes some of these. I want to give you an example. Uh, this isn't one of the questions that was asked to you, but or asked to me, but number 452. This is just sort of an example of how some people can, can look at a... At, at a um, at a hymn and sort of maybe nitpick it a little. But number 452, this is a song that we sing quite often, Night with Eben Pinion. And so someone might say, here, look at in the first verse of this song, it says, 
night with ebon pinion brooded o'er the veil. All around was silent, save the night wind's wail. I know a gospel preacher who was uh, who received a um, a letter from somebody saying, "Should we really sing this song? Because how do we know the wind was blowing that night?" Well, again, uh, poetic license. Right. Uh, or or Eben Pinion, the, the word Eben Pinion, if you look at the bottom of that page, it tells you that it means wings of darkness. You know, Eben means black, Pinion means wings. And uh, because there was a full moon on the Passover, right, uh, how did how how can they describe that night as Eben Pinion? Again, uh, they aren't talking uh, about a physical darkness. But it's a moral darkness. So again, you know, we need to be careful when it comes to these songs to understand sometimes that poetical license is used. Let me give you another example. 756. Again, another song that we're very familiar with. Uh, When we all get to heaven. You know, someone might say, well, we're not all going to heaven. Uh, You know, the Bible is clear about that, that uh, there's a narrow way that uh, few are going to take and a broad way that many are going to take. And not everyone's going to go to heaven. So how can we sing this song? But again, what was the author's intent when they wrote this? Was this someone who believes in universalism that every single person who ever existed is going to go to heaven? Or was the author simply referring to Christians? Right? When we come together and sing songs to one another, when we're teaching and admonishing one another, we're saying, you know, when we all get to heaven, and maybe it's just encompassing us here this evening. So again, uh, maybe there's some poetic uh, license in that. Uh, 829, uh, mansions over the hilltop. <clears throat> there's a passage in John chapter 14, verse 2, that you're probably familiar with, where Jesus says, that in my father's house are many mansions, right? And that word mansions um, hundreds of years ago meant something different than it means today, right? Today it means a luxurious home, right? But back then it, it just simply meant a dwelling place. And that's how most translations today translate that verse. Instead of in my father's house are many mansions, it'll say in my father's house are many dwelling places. Well, I again, I've... Um, I know of a preacher who says he will not sing this song or lead this song uh, because um, for conscience sake, he can't sing that. Because, um, you know, when people sing that, they maybe get the imagery that uh, that when we all get excuse me, that that I want a mansion over the hilltop. Right. Uh, Thinking of some vast, uh, luxurious home. But again, um, poetic license. Right. And so uh, one more. Let's just look at one more. 351. And again, I'm sorry for uh, rushing through these. 351. Uh, Jesus is coming soon. Again, another song that we're very familiar with. But someone might say, well, no one knows when Jesus is coming. So how can we sing that song? You know, maybe we should just drop the word soon off the title of it and just say Jesus is coming. And that would solve our problems, right? But uh, Jesus is coming soon. Where in the, where, uh, the first thing we should do is ask ourselves, where in the Bible is that in reference to? Or where can we find that in Scripture? Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 22, verse 7, verse 12, and 20. If you read from the ESV, uh, Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. But the New King James and New American Standard translates that, I am coming quickly. And that's the idea of the Greek word there, is that it's without unnecessary delay. 
Um, it doesn't mean immediately, but it means suddenly, right? And again, what was the author's intent when they wrote this song? Were, were they writing these off passages from maybe the ESV? Uh, that Jesus is coming soon, that Jesus is coming quickly. And again, soon is a relative term, isn't it? I could say here that I'm leaving soon, and that might mean five minutes. But I also could say, you know, that, or maybe someone else could say, not myself, but somebody else could say, you know, we're having a baby soon. But they might be in reference to two or three months later, right? Soon is a relative term. Jesus, when he gave John these words in the book of Revelation, said these things uh, 2,000 years ago, I am coming soon, right? Morning or night or noon. Uh, another thing to think of is God is not bound by time like you and I. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. Right? So if Jesus says, I am coming soon, and he said that about 2,000 years ago, then can we sing this song, Jesus is coming soon, and understand that he was not talking about, uh, you know, in the next few seconds, but that it's in, uh, maybe in reference to him coming suddenly. Right? And so, again, uh, I think when we look at questions like this, you know, we have to keep in mind we don't know the author's intent. We don't know, uh, again, uh, or we need to make sure that we understand the poetical license. And let, let's go into the scriptures and find, you know, where these passages come from as well. I, uh, I had a fifth question. I'm going to save this for uh, next Sunday evening. I'll just go ahead and uh, do a whole sermon on this question. Uh, just because for the sake of time. Uh, but um, here, here's the question. And uh, again, this will just kind of be a teaser to what our lesson will be next Sunday evening. But why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, the only unforgivable sin? And that's a great question. And think, of, think on that this week. That's your homework assignment. And we'll look at that together uh, next a Sunday evening. But again, I appreciate all the questions that you had. Uh, I really enjoy this. And uh, hopefully you can have some more uh, for us, and we'll just continue to do this, hopefully on a monthly basis, or if not later. But uh, this evening, as we uh, offer the invitation tonight, if anyone here needs the prayers of the congregation, the encouragement of this congregation, uh, we would love the opportunity to pray for you, or if you're here tonight and ready to become a Christian, put Christ on in baptism. Again, uh, let us know. Let us know that we can um, help you with that and to uh, help serve you in any way that we can. And uh, as we stand together and sing the song of invitation.